This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, The Bachelorette, the bookish edition. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so recently we've done quite a few sort of meaty episodes. So we thought that this week we should do something a little bit light and fun. Yes. Now, you may have guessed from the title, or maybe you haven't, but this week we are taking the well-known leading men from popular novels and dissecting them. Metaphorically, of course. Yeah, not physically. That That's for another episode. That's a horror episode. Halloween, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> now, uh, this episode, we're not just going to be messing about. Um, we're actually doing a trope and characterization episode in disguise. So, yes. pull off the mask. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> you pesky kids. Um, yeah. Finally, if you happen to like a character who doesn't get the dragon's vote today, that's that's fine. It really is. Um, this is half opinion piece, and we always love hearing counter arguments. So please drop us a line if you think we're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're gonna dive straight in now. I'd like you to picture this, people. <laughs> Imagine this is one of those highly improbable matchmaking programs. The star is someone who is looking for love with a literary character. The dragons have lined up the best, or at least the most popular, likely lads from well-known books, both modern and old. We're going to debate the pros and cons of each character, considering examples of their behaviour from the text. And at the end, we will cast our votes on who our imaginary bachelorette should choose. Uh, A small caveat, the reason we're sticking to male love interest in this episode is that they tend to have a longer history, so there's more for us to draw from, um, and this is basically a thought experiment. In addition, a lot of the more hotly debated choices come from male-female pairings from sort of the fantasy romance, romance, or 19th century novel type genres. Yeah. Um, We are more than willing to do a queer version of this episode if it turns out to be popular. Yeah, in fact, like, to be honest, I'm just quite willing to sort of return to this format, because honestly, I'm super excited for this. So, without further ado, let's meet our contestants! Um, and our first for the evening is, drumroll, that was a terrible drumroll, Edward Rochester from Jane Eyre. Let's look at a few pros now. He's clearly lived long enough that he's now not really influenced by wealth or beauty Mm -hmm. he's also looking for a true marriage of minds he's confident yet vulnerable and that can be absolute catnip for a lady absolutely he's also powerful yet and this is an important one highly intelligent and we can be fairly sure he will be absolutely faithful unto death So, with all of those things going for him, what are some of the cons to this particular bachelor? Well, the problem is, if we take Jane Eyre as the example, he deceives and he lies, and he pretty much deceives and lies to Jane from the very beginning. (laughs) Yes, we also have that other tiny little niggling problem, which is that he will keep cast off wives in the attic. (laughs) Just one, but one is enough. (laughs) He's willing to manipulate to get his own way. 
Yeah. And obviously, when he finally does fall in love, he is a tinsy bit of a coward. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. So, mm. in terms of literary heroes, I do actually like Mr. Rochester, even though he is highly, highly flawed. Um, the whole wife in the attic thing, yes, that's really bad. The really bad thing there, I guess, is the fact that he keeps the fact he has a wife secret. Yeah, because... You, the. Oh, go on. I was going to say, you learn why, obviously, during the story. He did not have a happy marriage. He was kind of tricked into it when he was an inexperienced 21-year-old. If you think about it to yourself at 21 and um, how, you know, if you did something really stupid and then had to live with it for the rest of your life kind of thing because there were no take-backs. Yeah. It's also kind of a strange situation in that, given the context of the period... Um, it, some people might have almost said that it was a bit of a kindness that he actually kept her at home rather than sending her to an asylum um, of course there are two sides to that um, You, there were absolutely some wealthier kind of asylums during the time uh, where she would not have been subject to abuse and she could have been cared for 24 hours of the day and surely in a the yellow wallpaper style being locked in an attic is probably not very good for your mental well-being um so there is a debate of whether actually he was doing her a kindness by keeping her at home and away from the public eye um and not subject to abuse or whether it was a form of abuse unto itself yeah, I'm inclined to say that it was intended as a kindness. And the reason I say this is I don't think Charlotte Bronte had enough access to the higher echelons of society to understand that there were asylums where more humane treatment was employed. I think she probably only heard about the worst varieties of them. Yeah. Uh, go, that's what she had in there. It says in the text that he is aware that if he had had his wife committed probably two or three years in that sort of institution would have taken care of the problem for him it would have killed her in yeah. the same way he could have had her secluded at his other manor house in Ferndean but because the site wasn't necessarily very healthy or or particularly habitable um, for humans again he thought that that might end up killing her and he said you know I've got many faults but indirect murder isn't one of them yeah. and then he also does try to save her life when she's just burned Thornfield Hall down. It's her who leaps from the battlements to kill herself. Um, so there's lots of things. This isn't a case of she was mad as in she was suffering from depression or anxiety or she was in a time that didn't understand them. She wasn't epileptic. Mm -hmm. This wasn't a case of her being, you know, ju just sort of a nervous disposition or being troublesome and he just wanted to put her away. This was a case of no, she physically abused servants and she was having very, very public affairs with other men. Mm -hmm. um, and she was basically a drunkard 24-7. Um, she physically attacked him on several occasions. This was before they realised that actually she was, to use the term at the time, mad. Yeah. Um, and after that point, she wasn't like mad in the sense of yeah I'm doped up on laudanum and I'm kind of really depressed or have you this wasn't yellow wallpaper this was my brother's come into the room I'm going to stab him and try to drink the blood out of his heart with by, by biting him through the chest yeah so she was clearly 
whatever the the issue was, there was clearly something very, very wrong with her. But that sort of behaviour would get you locked up for, for the sort of criminally insane, not just sort of like, oh, we want to get rid of this troublesome woman. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, Wide Sargasso Sea, um, which is an adaptation of Jane Eyre that looks at the, the wife's kind of story, um, has kind of painted things in a new light. Um, but of course, it's an interpretation. And that is kind of one of the most interesting things when it comes to looking at Edward Rochester is, of course, we see his entire character through the eyes of Jane, who does love him, but she is quite a critical person. Um, and of course, he does kind of break her heart, so she isn't always necessarily very kind to him, um, which I think gives us actually quite a nice perspective on his character. Um, and while it is always possible to kind of reinterpret things, re-examine them and give other voices, sorry, other characters voices, I certainly think that when I read Jane Eyre, I didn't see him as being a malicious person. Um, I kind of sort of saw him as taking advantage of certain situations and basically also having to think a little coldly at times of what would be the best, not just for other people, but for me. Um, but ultimately, actually, I did think that he did really love Jane and that even though initially the power dynamic within their relationship wasn't a very good one, um, it wasn't necessarily something that he wanted you know, he wasn't necessarily taking advantage of that because that's what the kind of relationship he wanted. He didn't want an unequal power dynamic. I think the absolute opposite. He wanted equality in his relationship. Yeah, he wanted a true companion and he wanted to offer her equality. The problem was he didn't quite know how to do that because he'd always been in this, this position of power. It, you, he almost needed that humbling at the end where he'd lost an awful lot, yeah. including temporarily Jane herself. Um, the lies and the manipulation kind of go hand in hand with, he's a bit of a mercurial character anyway, they go hand in hand with the, the cowardice, as in he's finally fallen, properly fallen in love after all this time, and he can't just tell her because he can't be sure that she feels the same way. So he kind of manipulates her into speaking first, which is really kind of, considering the power imbalance at that point is really low. <laughs> It, yeah, it's kind of funny though because like you see things with Edward Rochester and people are like, oh, you know, he's so manipulative and stuff like that. But weirdly enough, it's the kind of behaviour that you also see in like teenage dramas. Yep. <laughs> it's like this part of him that never really got the chance to grow up because he was pushed into this relationship that was completely wrong for him and then he couldn't ever... He He's one of those rare, or certainly at the time one of those rare men maybe maybe they weren't so rare but we were told they were rare who genuinely wanted a life partner as in someone who could be his as as Sinjin Rivers puts it his his help meet and his companion um thoroughly until death but without the sort of like I intend to make you an object of labor kind of thing yeah absolutely and it is I think that's one of the, the big things is that he is ultimately a lonely character He's been kind of, um, and again, you know, we've got to take this with a pinch of salt, but he has been dealing with, you know, his wife, 
um, not being well, being murderous, um, and you know him having to keep that a secret because otherwise she would be taken and locked away and would be killed. Um, he's been on his own and you know you get the sense that he doesn't actually really connect well with other people because they're not interested in the things that he's interested in. He is quite sort of an academic, he's an intellectual, he wants to have those debates, he wants to be challenged and either the people that he's meeting don't have the same interests as him or they're not challenging him and Jane is. Yeah absolutely. So yes he is a mixture of good and bad like other people are and in a lot of ways I think that makes him quite a convincing love interest. Yeah and I think one of the things that you know really kind of cements it is that Edward Rochester is the kind of person who wouldn't just be a love interest he would be your best friend if that makes sense Um, and I know that I mean I like to think that really your partner should be your best friend Um, but that's not always kind of the way that things are sort of relationships work and he would very much be your you know your wingman as much as your (laughs) yeah absolutely whereas if you compare him to Sinjin Sinjin who kind of thinks very little of romantic love or romantic love that grows to become that sort of enveloping love of friendship and companionship Mm-hmm. absolutely wants Jane but doesn't want her for herself wants her because she's useful yeah. um, sort of has a romantic attachment to Rosamond Oliver who is quite clearly not cut out to be a missionary's wife or yeah. indeed to match him intellectually so you know they would they would have been a bad match ultimately even though they did like each other mm. um, and he is every bit as manipulative and as overbearing as Rochester is, but without without concerns like, well, actually, he genuinely does love this person. He doesn't love her. He tells her he doesn't love her. And he's kind of doing this very cold Calvinistic Christian thing of, you know, you haven't offended me, but at the same time completely communicating the fact that he will make her regret it if she marries him. Yeah. It's, it's very disturbing the way he goes about it. And the the negging, seriously, the 19th century negging, you were formed for labour, not for love. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Which is very uncomfortable. Um, And the thing is that there's... and, And I think one of the things that sort of really is highlighted there is that at this kind of, at the least, he's being honest. And that was something that Rochester wasn't being. And I think that's why he works as a contrast yeah he's he's honest but he's also cold he's um, a good person without any vices but in a lot of ways that makes him terrible and 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 not a not a terribly engaging person to be around you can see that he is supposed to be the better man and yet you can absolutely see why the better man is not chosen yeah absolutely okay let's meet our second contestant (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Give it up, please, for Resand of the Night Court from A Court of Thorns and Roses series. I feel like we're going to get a lot of people who are angry with us for this one. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> okay, all right. So uh, let's have a look at what Resand can offer. So, number one, this guy's got wings. Um, I, so I d- he can take you anywhere you want. <laughs> 
And apparently, according to the people who've really got wing fetishes, he can take you any way you want as well. Yep. Apparently, this is a huge... I don't get it, but apparently this is a huge bonus. Um, okay, he really sees his love interest and seeks to improve her life and offer her opportunities. Yes. Um, absolutely. Um, he's also very generous with his possessions, his power and his time. Um, you know, he, he really does like to, you know, he, he, sort of his love language is very much gift giving, but the gift isn't always necessarily materialistic objects. Um, he does really like to provide things that he thinks that people will really need. Yeah. Um, the mating bond thing. Some people think this is a huge asset, you know, to have someone you're capable of forming this mating bond with. Um, yeah. I'm going to reserve my opinion on that for the moment. <laughs> At the very least, we can say that this is someone, he is someone who will form a very deep and very meaningful connection, I think. If we put aside the mating bond, um, it's this idea that there will be a connection which runs so deeply that your your thoughts can meet one another, as it were. Yes. Okay, so uh, let's look at some of the cons. Um <laughs> And uh, the, one of the cons is the mating bond thing. <laughs> yeah, the whole sort of removal of choice, while it removes complications. Um, okay, admittedly, in all of these sort of paranormal romance type scenarios where there's a mating bond, usually it's the male who has no choice, but the female who does. But I would argue that having someone who doesn't really have any choice but to imprint on you is not necessarily a massive asset. I mean, yes, you know he's never going to cheat on you or anything. He'll always be there. But I would rather have someone who chose to be there. Yeah. Now, it's quite interesting because, you know, um, as you pointed out, it does seem to be sort of male, very male-orientated thing, that he's the one who can really, really feel it. And if the woman rejects him, it's even said that it can drive them mad. It can drive them crazy. Yeah. Um, and, but... It was quite interesting in that love doesn't necessarily need to be a prerequisite to the no. mating bond, and something that um, uh, Sarah J. Mass actually introduced very early on is that you can have a mate, but you cannot. You might actually not be a good romantic pair together, and so the the romantic side of the relationship does still require work, and that was something that Resand did manage to balance but the mating bond did basically say are these two people actually you know have they met really because there is this sort of commonality between them or what was the thing that drew them there this kind of thing that took away all of their choice and even if that is the case does that matter because the quality of the relationship was still built on them actually coming together um you know, that's a whole debate. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, the face licking, drugging and lap dancing. Yes. Now, um, Jules and I have spoken about this in the past and obviously, you know, there are kind of great pains are gone to in the second book in the series to kind of explain why these things were happening. And strangely enough, I felt like in the second book, you kind of were able to sort of understand, okay, we're kind of being we're being given this reason but they're still being framed as this was a bad thing to do but it was something which was necessary at the time but it was still it was you know the lesser of two evils kind of situation 
and then it was reframed as in like it wasn't really a bad thing to do at all because actually it was all everything was all right actually the face licking was nice Feyre liked that even though at the time she didn't like it and stuff like that and that's where things got very very weird it wasn't I've done evil things because I was being forced to do evil things or it even because I was being a bit of a dick at the time or even because I was being a bit of a dick at the time it's I did those things and they weren't actually evil at all or dickish at all yeah um and that is mm, no um that there is basically this kind of an excuse for very 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 dangerous behavior very like, yeah, dickish behavior um instead of consequence and don't mm-mm. don't gaslight us we were there we know what happened <laughs> yeah um and even if the main character tells us it's like because they're fictional you know we we sort of experienced it with them and it, sort of trying to rewrite the fact it just feels a bit strange definitely um capable of abuse behavior abusive behavior rather sorry to his love interests family um this is never more apparent than the way he treats nesta and i think we're supposed to think this is okay because nesta and Feyre had a difficult relationship um earlier earlier before you know one and Feyre was growing up etc um i would argue that that kind of wasn't really any of his business um, but it's very interesting to me that the way Nesta gets treated in A Court of Silver Flames is very reminiscent to the way we're supposed to deplore a Feyre being treated by Tamlin in A Court of Mist and Fury. Yeah. In the, namely, and this is, I think, this is a big thing, and people seem to think, oh, well, therefore it's okay. Now, in A Court of Mist and Fury, Feyre is trapped in the house with magic. Yeah. Um, now she can go through the lands but she just can't leave the, sort of the grounds in um, A Court of Silver Flames Nesta is trapped inside the house with stairs essentially and the whole premise the kind of it, the thing is like well she could do it she just has to be sort of physically strong enough and it's like yeah but Feyre also could have probably broken through that barrier if she had her magic trained or something like that yeah and the fact of the matter is is that they were put into a situation where they were unable with their own power at that moment to not make that choice and people will say ah oh, but nesta did have a choice and it was like nesta's choice of either go to the house of wind or was either go to the house of wind or go to the human lands which are filled with people who hate her where she has absolutely nothing no opportunity no friends and a lot of people who would probably kill her on sight um and also like a place which is associated with a lot of bad memories um and where there is nowhere safe for her at all that wasn't a choice that's like saying you're either going to do what i say or i'm going to throw you out into the streets yeah um that is abusive and manipulative behavior Absolutely. Um, my One of my biggest things with Resand won't tell you you're likely to die in childbirth. Yes. Because um, apparently keeping that information from you is for your own good. Yeah. Um, it, it is this kind of, this whole sort of, the removal of choice, I think. And even when the removal of choice happens and ultimately it's something which 
can be forgiven or understood by another character, that doesn't mean that the behaviour itself is alright. Um, so even if Feyre can forgive Raysand for that and can understand why he did it, that doesn't make what he did alright. No, and that kind of withholding, I would argue, is possibly even more abusive than anything Tamlin ever did. So I, it annoys me when Rhysand gets held up as this sort of shining flower of manhood and romantic partnerhood when he's willing to pull that sort of shit. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and finally, he's a bit of an alpha hole, if yeah. we're honest. Yeah, he, he swings, this is obviously the writer's fault, but he swings between having no character at all and just being like an adjunct to Feyre to being sort of like this this, this alpha male cardboard cutout. Yeah. Which, again, is annoying. <laughs> of course, I do have to counter this and try to sort of... I'll counter this by saying that one thing that is obviously interesting is that we do see Resand from different points of view. And it is interesting to see Resand acting in bad ways uh, from an external point of view. Um, kind of highlighting the fact that Feyre does sort of see him with more forgiving eyes um, and is kind of kinder to him and more forgiving of him and willing to rewrite things herself. Um, now, I feel like this would be more successful if ultimately Recent wasn't then proven right. Like, for example, Nesta sort of, you know, forgives Resand as well and thinks that he did the right thing. And a lot of people kind of do point out, right, well, what they were trying to do with Nesta, which was different from Feyre, was that they were trying to save her life. Um, and there is something to be said about, you know, people who are in very, very bad sort of situations might need to be pushed towards getting the help that they need. But ultimately, the help that they need should be dictated by the person that they are. And yes, ultimately, Nesta did become this great, you know, this warrior and stuff like that, but that was just sheer fluke and luck. Nothing of the way that she had been before dictated anything sort of gearing her towards that. Yeah, I think the trouble is they also made a big point of the fact that she was an embarrassment. Yeah. And that should have been the least of the issue if you were genuinely bent on helping somebody. Because yes, it is embarrassing, but ultimately it's like, it, it doesn't matter. It, she's in this situation, rightly or wrongly, because of Feyre. Yeah, and I think the other problem with the addiction kind of way that they looked at things was that if it, you know, yes, she was she was using she was self medicating with alcohol. Was she an alcoholic? If she was, then the others drinking around her is a big no no. Yeah, it was more like she was just drinking to have it. She, it's not a good trail of alcoholism or alcohol dependence and those are two different things as well hmm. so yes there so so there we have Resand, our second contestant <laughs> okay so we're going to move on to our third contestant who i think is um <laughs> even more of a <laughs> anyway so uh our third contestant is heathcliff 
from Wuthering Heights. Now, the pros of dating Mr. Heathcliff. Well, number one, he will love you and only you onto death and beyond. Like, not even an, until death do we part like that. There's no departing. He will continue <laughs> to love you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, the whole wild and powerful thing, he's almost like an aspect of the moor himself. And if you like something like that, um, something a bit sort of like aspect of nature, then mm-hmm. yeah, that, that might be appealing. Yes. Um, he will change the world, or at least his place in it, in order to win you. Um, he will, he's literal, I will move mountains kind of guy. Yeah, and he'll be as good as his word when he gives it. That's the thing, he never really lies. If he says he's going to do something, he does it. It might take him a decade, but he will do it. Yeah. Um, there's also the bad boy thing. And a lot of people like a bad boy, as long as there's something reformable about them. Yes. So with that all in mind, uh, let's have a look at a few of the cons. Uh, well, the first one, which is uh, quite important, is animal abuse. Yeah, killing a whole nest full of linnets just because you weren't there to see them is is not a good look. Neither is hanging up the woman's the woman he's just proposed to's dog. Yeah, uh, from a tree branch. That's that's all not great stuff, right there. No. There is also spousal abuse. Yes, it's sketched over a bit, but it's very clear that this is this is what's been happening to Isabella Linton. It, it's yeah. encapsulated the fact she turns up half starved and bruised and you know she's lost all her nice ways because she's kind of you know what it doesn't matter survival's the thing that matters Heathcliff's the devil kind of thing yeah um, big on revenge you wouldn't Very necessarily think big that. on revenge <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily think that's a bad thing but actually I mean his revenge when it's enacted is against Kathy as much as anybody else yes He's, he's definitely not someone who can live and let lie. Um, finally, uh, he will dig up your corpse. And cuddle it. And cuddle it. Um, which, you know, some people <laughs> might think is romantic, but most of us can probably agree that that's a bit of a no-no. Uh, he's genuinely vicious, as in full of vice. He's learnt violence very early on, and violence and manipulation is, mm-hmm. is a way of life for him. To be honest, he's he's clearly intelligent. He's clearly... He, he doesn't play by the normal rules of society. He's never going to. No. And he could have been a much better person than he was. He was an abused child, we have to remember that. Yes. Um, but he takes that and he loads it onto other people. Yeah, there is very much this I will learn by example um, and and I will make it even worse. <laughs> it's the, I think it's the, the way he treats Hareton as well. He finally gets um, Earnshaw's son Hareton yeah. in his grasp and basically what his words are we'll see if one tree won't grow as twisted as an, won't grow in the same way as another with the same wind to twist it he intends to inflict what he suffered as a child on this this child who's got nothing to do with him yeah to see if he can create another version of himself yeah and he doesn't succeed either so there's something to be said for nature yeah 
And then finally, um, being loved by him is akin to being loved by a natural disaster. Yeah. Um, when we talk about him being sort of literally moving mountains, uh, he might literally do that while you're on the mountain. <laughs> I'm always astounded that Heathcliff is considered this great romantic hero um, and that people seem to overlook the really bad stuff he does. You know, the stuff that's like neon signposts through the text where Emily Bronte's saying, yes, but look at this, look at this. And his only real redeeming characteristic, characteristic is the way he loves and the depth of that love and the fact it is unchanging. But at the same time, that is almost immature and it's very destructive as an emotion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's almost a curse. The love is a curse. It's a curse to him, which causes him to lash out um, and causes great pain for everybody around it. Um, and he will make his problems everyone else's problems. Yes. Okay. Moving on to Bachelor number four. <laughs> Fitzwilliam Dar Darcy of Pride and Prejudice. Okay, so let's look at the pros of this particular bachelor. So, number one, uh, Mr. Darcy is a very principled and honourable man. Yeah, absolutely. There is, you know, he's clearly a, by, by the standards of the time and by our standards now, he's clearly a decent person. Yes. Um, he is faithful in love. Yes. Um, he will not cheat. He will not um, sort of look the other way. He's very, very much of the kind of the union of the market. Sorry, sort of the union between two people, and it being um, you know something which centres his world. He's also, and this is one which I think really wins a lot of people. He's a very kind guardian to his sister. He's a good master, and he is a good landlord. Um, he doesn't abuse his power. He is um, very kind of generous, not generous, but sort of good with, you know, his sister, um, loving, understanding um, and courteous with his staff. He doesn't see them as objects. He sees them as people who are doing a service for him. And that is really important, not just in the case of, yeah, he will treat them as if they're human beings, but he, I mean, it, they, the housekeeper in the book says she's never had a cross word from him ever since he was a child. He's always treated them with respect. Mm -hmm. um, this was not a foregone conclusion in the 19th century. No. And it was a case of, you know, how, have you ever been at a restaurant on a date with somebody and they have really talked down to the waiter? Yeah, or the waitress. Absolutely. Yeah, I and mean, it's, it's, like, it's not a foregone conclusion to, today either. No, it's not. So it's kind of one of those that is a massive red flag. Somebody treating someone they perceive as their social inferior badly is a huge red flag because when they start perceiving you as their inferior, they will treat you the same way. Yeah. Uh, the next, of course, is that he's a very generous person. Yes. He's not necessarily splashy about it, but he is. Yeah. And again, it's important to recognise that obviously being in a position of wealth, it's he's he can afford to be generous, but he isn't just generous with money and materialistic items either. Um, you know, he's very generous and welcoming with his home, um, with his time for those who need it. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that, for example, you know that he doesn't want to go to any of these parties, uh, but he, he, he goes because Bingley wants to go. 
Yes. And I think that that is a form of him being generous. He he goes, he's there for Bingley. Um, certainly not because he wants to be there. <laughs> um, um, perhaps the second most important thing, he's willing to admit he was wrong and he's willing to change himself for no other outcome than the fact that he realises he was wrong and that he's got some work to do. Yeah. Now, I think this is a really important one because it's not that he changes himself for Lizzie. It's that Lizzie gives him a new perspective and he examines himself. He doesn't do it in the hopes that he might win her. Um, in fact, he only kind of gets those hopes that something might have changed when they start reconnecting. But he has already been making those changes, which I think is an incredibly important thing to distinguish. It's not a, I'm going to make myself look better so that I can win her heart. It's I've been forced to confront myself and perhaps now um, I can be a better person and oh we've reconnected yeah um, and I think that that's actually one of his most admirable qualities definitely okay let's look at a few cons yeah okay so he's terrible at parties <laughs> <laughs> he's certainly terrible when he's off his home turf when it's a group of friends and people he's relatively comfortable with he's fine he's not the life and soul but he's fine when yeah. he's forced into society with a group of people he doesn't know who he kind of doesn't feel he has much uh sympathy with them in the sense of they don't have much in common and he feels like he's being trotted out like a performing horse yes he feels he's not great he's really really bad yeah um it's kind of interesting looking at it from sort of our perspective now that we have an idea of sort of things like, um, you know, like neurodivergence and stuff like that. And I feel like a lot of people can project onto him and basically say, well, actually, when I'm surrounded by lots of noise and lots of people moving and stuff like that, and everyone is there chatting away about inane things. All Including to... how much I'm worth a year and whether I'm marriageable. Yeah, exactly. And looking at me like just an opportunity or a conquest and not actually, and I can't trust anything that anyone says to me because they all have an agenda, which is to get my wealth. Um, I will actually also be prickly and I will lash out and I will say things and I will also look at these people as inferior. And um, we'll talk a, bit, a little bit, sort of, I think about that sort of later on, but it's very interesting to me that when he is talking to Lizzie about the sort of, the inferiority of her sort of of her family and stuff like that yes there is a classism thing that comes into it which she points out you know we you know my father is a gentleman you are a gentleman um there is no there is no difference between us um just because of sort of money or anything like that which is a whole other issue um he kind of actually points out the crass behavior and to me, that kind of indicates that that's the thing that he really dislikes. It's not anything to do with money, and it's to do with crass behaviour of openly talking about what he's worth while he's in earshot, you know, parading sort of daughters, uh, no kind of social graces, etc. These particular things. And, you know, we see that still in the modern day with a lot of people being like, oh, well, they're just, you know, I don't want to be around these people because they're crass. Yeah. Um, etc um but yeah so he will be very rude um he's also and let's not deny it he's very haughty and he's very proud 
yeah, he's had this instilled into him since childhood. Um, he says himself, I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and vanity. And nobody has ever really checked him on it because they're all thinking very similarly to him. And it isn't until someone says, yeah, you, you, you want this glaring flaw in your character that maybe you want to work on a little bit. Yeah. Which he's genuinely horrified by. Yeah. And I think what's very interesting is that we kind of have to remember he was orphaned at a, I say at a young age, you know, he was a, he was a young man, you know, he, he was barely kind of out of college. Yeah. I think he'd just sort of reached 21, hadn't he? Yeah. Um, and, and and was a guardian of a ten-year-old girl. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I feel like his father was a very kind of grounding presence in his life, and probably his father would have been the one who would have kind of sort of kept him in check a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then his father was gone, and he was suddenly elevated to a position of being lord and master of this entire estate. You know estates i don't know if he has more than one um you know and everyone it starts to treat him in a certain way um he has no one to check him really the the people who are equal to him are also behaving in certain ways and so and i think also as a form of protection he had to step into that role with confidence um so I think what starters are kind of right, well, I need to portray this confidence was then reinforced, 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 reinforced. And it, it became sort of, it, it grew his pride and it grew his, his um, vanity is the wrong word, his, his haughtiness. Yeah, I mean, um, okay, the second, the next point is disdainful and snobbish. I think this is never more apparent than when he first proposes to Elizabeth Bennet in the sense yeah. that um, he goes in assuming her, her her yes is a given, assuming that she's given her consent before he's even asked because who is going to turn down 10,000 a year? So he even kind of hates himself a bit as he's proposing because you know what she he's sort of assuming that she's inferior enough that she she'll look at the money and say yes and he's hoping that maybe she'll come to feel some affection for him later on but he must have her one way or another and that's why it's such a huge shock when she's like no thanks (laughs) yeah absolutely and i think again it it plays into this whole thing jane austen has just done it masterfully and i think it's why this he he is he sort of works so well as a character in that he's kind of seen her mother acting in a certain way he's he's made assumptions about the family and their behavior and stuff like that including obviously uh lizzie's sister because he thinks right these people are just there for the money and more fool me i've gone and fallen in love with someone who doesn't who would never really care about who i you know doesn't really care about who i am but will join me just because i'm rich and perhaps in time we can make that connection but you know and so he's angry with himself but he can't deny himself and then of course he's kind of made to realize actually just because our mother speaks in the way that she does doesn't reflect who we are as people um and that you need to actually understand that not everyone is a certain way just because of certain circumstances yeah absolutely and the the entire thing with sort of like and you chose to tell me that you liked me against your will, against your reason, and even against your own better judgment. Yeah. And it's like, that's that's not a tempting offer. It doesn't matter how much money you come with. 
and you've assumed that they'll say yes. Yeah, and I think it's a big thing for him because it's a moment of he actually, for the first time, actually feels seen. And in being seen, he sees himself and and doesn't like what he finds. Yeah. Um, Which is part of the whole, his kind of whole growth. Um, And I think is perfectly reflected, not least in kind of the way he then treats Lizzie and stuff like that, but actually in the way that he opens up and speaks to Bingley about um, Jane. Yeah. Okay, uh, finally, uh, and this is definitely a con, he has at least one really awful aunt. (laughs) It's kind of valuable in a way because he's sort of disdainful of Lizzie's relations and then it's like, actually, you've got one at least who is as bad as at least three of hers. Yeah. <laughs> you've kind of got to say, well, he did have that influence in his life the whole time. I mean, you kind of sort of start to understand maybe uh, <laughs> where some of his haughtiness came from. But uh, It's like, <laughs> and the whole, that's his nearest re- living relation, apart from his sister. And his sister's not going to correct him because she's 15 years old or 16 years old. Yeah, and so, she thinks that the sun shines out of his eyes. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay, right. Uh, We're going to jump into more modern times now, um, and we're actually going to do a double here, uh, because we've got two Bachelors from the same fandom. Yes, obviously the Bachelorette does not have to take both of them. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Though... uh... Then maybe that would have solved a lot of issues. That would have solved a lot of issues. Polyamory, guys. Um, So our first of these two bachelors is Edward Cullen from the Twilight series. Yes. So uh, what are the pros of dating Edward? Well, first of all, he has fought very hard to be a decent person and still continues to fight to be a decent person. And considering the fact that he is now no longer human and every time he's near a human he kind of wants to eat them, it's not like it's an easy battle for him. No. This isn't just kind of like, I must think before I, I, I speak. This is, I need to keep remembering that humans are people and I can't just eat them kind of thing. Yes. Uh, next, um, he has acknowledged that he is a work in progress and that is, I think, incredibly sexy to be honest um there is something to be said about uh people who basically say actually i am still working on myself yeah um and i know that i'm not there yet and i'm not just therefore kind of giving up and saying well this is where i am i'm at it's i am going to continue to work on myself because it's important that i do absolutely um he's devoted Mm -hmm. definitely I mean, very devoted. Very devoted. <laughs> Can be its own problem, but he's devoted. Yes. Yeah. Um, and as part of that devotion, he will always put you first. Yes. Uh, sometimes without your consent. <laughs> yeah, sometimes without remembering that you have an opinion. Yeah. Um, question mark. Exciting. Some people find the whole dicing with death thing very exciting. Spice to the relationship. Yeah. And he's definitely sort of the fantasy element. Yeah, he he definitely um, wouldn't. Uh, you would it, things would never be boring with him. And I will add another one, which is that he does have something that a lot of people will actually quite like. He does have this close kind of family unit, um, and for some people, actually um, dating someone who is close with family and who does have good relations with family is very important. Definitely. 
okay, the cons. Um, the rules literally don't apply to him. So everything you live your life by, it doesn't really apply to him at all. Um, yeah. Because he's not human. Ergo, human rules are kind of stupid when you try to apply them. Yes. Um, also, because of everything, uh, he will basically completely outgun you on everything. He will be better than you at everything because he's had time to learn to do everything and also um, he's physically you know stronger faster etc and photographic memory etc etc literally it's kind of it's almost it's almost not worth trying you can't compete and i i would actually find that quite a turn off i'd like to bring something to the table yeah other than just being the emotional support to sort of actually be someone who can you know have your own kind of corner where really you are that that's sort of your thing yeah. i think would make a big difference he's obsessive yes which you know <laughs> kind of comes from the whole dating your own prey thing yes a little bit yeah now some people have kind of pointed out this idea that stephanie mayer never included but that vampires might have a kind of mating bond of their own yeah. Um, and certainly I think the fact, one of the big things also with Edward is that he's stuck in time. He's always going to be a 17 year old. And, um, and I think being part of stuck in time also means that he cannot get over sort of that initial flash of love, as it were. There's that. And there's the fact that it's very clear that vampires make for life. Yeah, and once they lose their mates, most of them will self-destruct. They will find a way to die. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think all of that kind of goes into his into why he's kind of an obsessive character. Now, of course, part of that obsession is that he will watch you sleep, sometimes um, with your consent, sometimes, sometimes without with it. <laughs> yeah. Now, I think there's kind of two sides to that. Some people kind of find it sort of sweet. To, to sort of watch a partner sleep and things like that there is this element of I am watching you at your most vulnerable and nothing will happen to you but there is the, the whole consent issue there which is that Bella didn't know that Edward was watching her sleep because she didn't know that Edward was breaking into her house no I will say that he didn't have to come clean about that and I mean if you read Midnight Sun he does actually say well, I wanted to have as equal a footing with her as possible, so I was going to confess everything. And he, he does tell her this because it's like, no, you need to really understand what I'm capable of. And I did this. And she takes it completely the wrong way. Instead of giving him a hard time, she's just really flattered. For fuck's sake. That's something you could get legitimately annoyed about. Yeah. Though again, and I, I don't want to sort of do a callback, there is a difference here in, in the case of, I think, with sort of recent, in that basically probably also because we do get to see it from Edward's point of view. We do basically get to him to kind of acknowledge that, yeah, but that none of that made it okay. Just because she's taken it well mm. doesn't mean that what I did was okay and I'm not happy with myself because of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, big drawback, he desperately wants to kill you and has to consciously fight it all the time. Yes. Now, he will get better about that, uh, but <laughs> it doesn't change the fact that he does want to do that. And kind of as part of that, you know, um, he will end up taking over your whole world. And essentially, if you want to be with him, you will have to change your whole world. It, you will have to go into his. You won't be able... There's no compromise there. Yeah, or he'll 
about to leave. Yeah. I mean, I think the the understanding, again, sort of Midnight Sun, he's sort of he'll only have a few precious years with Bella before she outgrows him. She understands that. That's why she's going on all the time about getting older and wanting to be turned into a vampire because she knows that eventually she will outgrow him because there's part of him that will always be 17. And when she's 21, 25, 32, whatever. Yeah. A 17-year-old partner whom she can't have really a physical relationship with isn't going to be enough. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's the other massive issue, which is that she is also very aware of the fact that if she, you know, leaves him, he will die, basically. Yeah. You know, he will self-destruct. He won't be able to kind of cope with it. Um, and even though this is kind of unspoken, like, the implication is very, very much there. Um, you know, when he does think that he's lost her, he does try to commit suicide. Um, and so there is this kind of this pressure, which is that once you've formed any kind of bond with him, that's it. That's your decision made. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's move on to Jacob Black, also from the Twilight series. Yes. So one which is going to uh, really sort of tickle a lot of people is that Jacob can turn into a wolf. Yes, if you're a dog lover. <laughs> well, maybe not dog lover. <laughs> I, mean, I came I think, out wrong. I think there's something to be said about just the idea of having like a horse, a, a horse-sized wolf who you can just, you know. Uh, the problem is I can't say ride around because people. That sounds get even bad. Idea. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> But yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like, this isn't, oh God, I don't want to say the word furry, but it's come out now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, moving on. Um, he's friendly and good natured. He is, in some ways, he's one of the most pure minded souls ever. He's a really, really lovely person. Yeah. I feel like we lose a little bit of that as it kind of goes on, but certainly when it starts off, he is very, very, you know, before he kind of hits his angst, he is, you know, Bella describes him as being basically like sunshine. Um, he's bubbly, he's sweet, um, and he's definitely down for a laugh. He's got that puppy love down to a, to a, you know, a fault. Yeah. Um, he's also an excellent mechanic. That's um, that's a big plus point. A, a bloke who's genuinely useful. Yeah, and like again, it's. <laughs> I think it's just the fact that he's you know he he's willing to kind of get down. He's willing to sort of to fix things and stuff like that. And but the problem is that he's he's got this. He's an excellent mechanic, but he isn't adhering to certain stereotypes that we get. In that he's not kind of coarse. He's not rude and again these are stereotypes i completely understand um but you know the stereotypical alpha alpha male yeah he can fix a car and stuff like that uh, jacob is not that he's sweet he's kind and he's also very good with his hands um and that's <laughs> definitely <laughs> oh my god so never ending I'm on this so one. sorry you know what i mean um yes. I, I think that that's just going to tick a lot of people's boxes yeah. Uh, pays attention to you and tries to make you happy. This is a big thing. Mm. Um, he notices what makes Bella upset, even though she's not saying it. He pays attention to her needs. Um, yeah. That's not something to undervalue in a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's also kind. Yeah. And he's a very good friend. I think there's a lot to be said for a, a best friend becoming your your lover kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, uh, what are some of the cons? Well, uh, a little bit like Edward, um, he might accidentally kill you. Um, but that's not necessarily because he wants to, it's only if you happen to get too close when he's angry. Still not great. <laughs> no. Um, jealous and possessive. Honestly, I don't think he's any worse than any other sort of 16, 17 year old boy. Yeah. Um, Navigating but... the waters of romance for the first time is just unfortunately he has a lot more power behind him. <laughs> yes. Uh, there are of course also the less savoury aspects of the wolf thing. Like the imprinting, for example, mm-hmm. yep. as in might be devoted to you, and then one day sees somebody else, and it just won't matter. Yeah, can't can't kind of help it. I feel like it, maybe there could have been a little bit of wiggle room where the imprinting thing wasn't always inherently romantic, but could just be like you sort of you form a bond with that person, but that that could be like a fatherly bond, or it could be a you know, like a friendship bond or something like that. Uh, but that's that obviously isn't the case, and it just, yeah. It, that's a whole other kettle of fish, uh, which we're going to put to the side, not least yes. because you could you could end up <laughs> pregnant and he might imprint on your on your newborn child, uh, which is... Uh, no, yeah. no, surely not, because that would be his child as well. Um, well, yeah, okay, it depends on whether, uh, you know... Perhaps you come into the relationship with a child. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, anyway, um, he's also inexperienced and he will make mistakes because of it. I mean, I kind of think that's one of the more forgivable cons because it's just a case of it doesn't matter if you aged up to 25 years overnight. Um, you're still technically a 16 year old boy. <laughs> so, yeah. of course, you're going to screw up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but certainly he does have a kind of a few anger issues that go along with that. But again, 16-year-old boy. Yeah. Now, from uh, one kind of teenager to another, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's look at Romeo from Romeo and Juliet. Okay, pros. Uh, he's pretty good at waxing poetical on the spot. So if you like someone who's good with his words, that could mm-hmm. be a pro for you. Absolutely. Um, turns out he's actually also pretty handy with a sword, which is which is good. Um, yeah, definitely till death do you part. <laughs> <laughs> like very much so, um, and definitely to the extent that he's he's very intense, which some people like. Yeah, it, it, he is very much ride or die. Yeah, um, or ride and die. <laughs> Sorry. Oh dear God. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we've got to wrap this up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so some of the cons. Uh, well, first of all, he is impulsive and he is reckless. He is really quite emotionally immature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which was the next point, but yeah, it kind of goes into the impulsive recklessness. Why yeah. marry somebody and then literally five minutes later kill their cousin and cause a big interfamilial war? Yes. Though, of course, you can basically, you could actually say that that's actually because he's a very faithful friend. Yeah. Um, so the kind of, and again, the immaturity might be to do with his age. Um, and some people do like impulsiveness, the ability to kind of just sort of take an action and take charge in a moment. Yeah. Um, however, unfortunately, part of that impulsiveness is because he does think a little bit via his codpiece. 
Yeah, it's the whole, it, again, it's the emotional immaturity thing. It's like one minute he's in love with Rosaline and the next minute he's all about Juliet. And it's, you know, you get the impression that it's genuine with Juliet. There's a genuine connection from the way they talk, etc. Um, yeah. Let's ignore the fact that it's it's like a two-day love story between two teenagers that ends up with like five people dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> ignoring that for the moment. Yeah. Now, of course, one person could sort of argue that actually what's happening is that you know he was just a typical guy before and oh yes he can whack wax lyrical about Rosalind and stuff like that but the reason he forgets her so quickly is because he suddenly makes a true and meaningful connection yeah um which is clearly fate bound more than anything else um however (laughs) he's not a very logical person he really isn't I mean if you take if you think Romeo and Juliet together are the ride-or-die unit, Juliet's clearly the brains of the operation. Yeah, she, she really is. Um, and he, because again, the impulsiveness, he will tend to act before he thinks. Yes, definitely. Um, and to be honest, he's a bit of a himbo. He is. You get the impression that he has great personal attractiveness. He's clearly got good materials there for the man he would become if he doesn't die in an untimely way. Um but yeah, he, it's the whole impulsive, stupid teenager thing sort of dialed up to the power of 10, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Now, of course, some people like a good himbo, um, so that might be a pro, a pro for you and isn't necessarily a con. But unfortunately, the problem is that if he himbos too hard and dies before you can get anywhere. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Our last bachelor for the evening is John Thornton from North and South. So let's look at some of the pros here. Uh, Number one, he is intelligent and he's pretty well reasoned. Yes, he is. Um, And I don't know quite how to describe this, but he's someone okay let's go into the rest of them i'm sure it'll come to me but basically he's also someone who is uh for someone who owns a mill (laughs) a cotton mill at the time he is kind to his employees in the sense of he's not unreasonable in terms of you know casting out a worker who can't work it's a case of yeah okay well if you've got another child at home they can come in and take the place of this one for the time being if you can get them here within a certain amount of time He's still very respectful to his mother, perhaps a little too respectful. Um, he yeah. deals with his rather vapid sister, and he puts a will in his uh, a will a wheel in his mill, which helps alleviate the inhaled cotton that a lot of workers get. You know the fuzz they get on their lungs, which causes basically what's like miner's lung, but with cough, but but with cotton fibers, um, yeah. which will eventually kill them. And he's you know his he's quite sound in reasoning that you know they live longer they work for me longer their children work for me longer so yes maybe i can't measure that in terms of immediate profit but actually this is a better thing to do and you get the impression that he's talking about it in terms of this is the most logical thing to do but actually it's a moral thing for him as well he does feel moral obligation for his workers yeah and like you also see that in the obviously um if you if you watch the series um one of our first introductions is him beating a guy up and actually the reality is is that he's he's reacting so violently because this person is putting the mill and everybody in it in immediate danger because it's a cotton mill and he's smoking yeah 
Um, and what would happen is that basically, most likely, if things caught fire, most of the people in the immediate vicinity would die or be horrifically injured. And he does react very, very quickly to that. Yeah. Next, um, he's really quite understanding. Um, and he, and he, he, when I say that, is in like, he will understand you. He'll take the time to understand you and actually be able to see you for who you are. Yeah. Uh, he's also an honourable person. I mean, I think honourable, it sounds like it's like a dry quality, but actually someone who is going to treat with you in good faith hmm. is actually a valuable commodity. Someone whose word you may trust. Yeah, completely agree. Um, you know, as part of that, he will also consider other people's viewpoints. And that is actually very, very important um, in that he's not stuck so much within his own head that he won't actually kind of re-examine things from other people's perspectives and then make appropriate changes uh, to sort of, you know, to accommodate. Yeah. Uh, he's constant in love as well. Yeah. So um, he's not a... He's not a ne'er-do-well or a libertine. <laughs> no, um, he's not fickle, certainly. Um, and he is a self-made man. He he kind of pulled himself up uh, and, you know, he's got a good business head um, and a lot of drive because and of that. discharged his father's debts. His father, who ran up loads of debts, almost lost the mill and killed himself. And he took on the role of man of the house at the age of 12 and somehow managed to get everything together to pay everyone off. Yeah. Which Over is years. <laughs> rather remarkable. So, uh, what are some of the cons to this man? Well, number one, he has a temper. Yes, the whole sort of beating beating a man who's technically his inferior. But as Madeline says, the context for that is, yeah, I've seen a mill fire and I've seen the bodies laid out on the hillside and a lot of them were children. Yeah, and there's like, the mill may be insured, but um, by God. <laughs> and he's perfectly candid about the fact that he lost his temper under those circumstances yeah um he's a bit rough around the edges i mean that could have gone in prose as well yeah some people like that um <laughs> so don't want he, it too finished no he, he can be a little bit not crude um well crude in some respects um and kind of a bit kind of gravelly i guess a bit sandpapery yeah um, which I think, again, some people really like. <laughs> he comes across as quite stern and forbidding without much sense of humour. This is not unusual for someone who's had to shoulder adult burdens as a child. Yeah. Um, he hasn't really had time to play and have companions and maybe even finish his education. <laughs> yeah. And you also kind of get this sort of defensiveness kind of from, from that point of view because from a young age he had to basically defend the decisions that he was making because people would have looked down at him. This is a child entering a business, you know, a man's world. He had to be confident. And so that's kind of become part of who he is in his core kind of, you know, qualities. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as part of that, he does have a chip on his shoulder about his origins. Yeah, the fact that, yes, he is wealthy now. Um, and a responsible employer, etc. But he's obviously not gentry. He's come from the working class. It's not several generations ago. It's his generation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, you know, he has been looked down upon by other people. And so he immediately therefore assumes that everyone is looking down on him. Yeah. 
Um, and he may well prejudge you based on where you came from. This is actually kind of like a characteristic between, at the time, the north of England mm -hmm. and the south of England, where they assume that if you're in the north, then you must be sort of strange and unhealthy and living in cramped, dirty squalor, which a lot of them were, in fairness. And if you come from the south, that you're soft and you're soft in the head and you're soft in what you can endure. But it's like, actually, it's a different sort of hard work. Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, we, you still kind of see that to this day as well. Yeah, it, it's mostly tongue-in-cheek now, but occasionally you do still get it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we have reached the end of our sort of lineup, um, And after our careful debates, um, it's time for us to cast our votes. So, Jules, would you like to go first and tell me... Who would you pick as the best love interest? Well, wait, wait a second. It, for 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 this does, of, of these kind of of, of this. Group. Does does John Thornton look like Richard Armitage? Just as a just as an aside. No, okay, I'm not. I'm not actually that shallow. I promise. Um, no, I think of all of them. I would actually pick Mr. Darcy, and he's not my favourite Jane Austen her heroine. He's not my favourite Jane Austen heroine. He's not my favourite Jane Austen hero. But in terms of. Um, decency and the way he treats other people and the fact that the, the big seller there is the fact that he's okay to admit that he's wrong and then sort himself out that's a that's a big you know the other stuff all the cons are kind of things that you can overcome with somebody who is good for you which you know he's got the common sense to actually pick someone who's good for him um yeah and you know everyone's got at least one really awful relation that they can't get rid of so that's kind of a package deal thing so yeah I, he, he would be my pick I guess yeah um and you know <laughs> the thing is you were saying does John Thornton look like Richard Armitage and I'm like does uh, <laughs> does Darcy look like Colin but um because yes to be honest I think I would also pick Darcy yeah. um just because I think sort of the two big things are the kindness that you really see him particularly the way that he is with his sister because that will really kind of show how someone treats their dependents and how someone treats um you know the people around them immediately is very telling of their character and i think basically in his heart of hearts he is a kind and decent person um, and it is very much a meeting of the minds. Um, he wants genuine union um, and he wants to kind of have someone who is on par with him. So I think definitely Darcy for me too. Yeah, there you go, unanimous. <laughs> unanimous. It's Darcy. Uh, but what about you guys? Would you have picked someone else? Um, you know, we, you know, we'd love to hear from you. I know that I can already hear a few people immediately saying, "Well, it's always going to be Resand," and I can appreciate that. And some people who say, "Oh, it'll be Edward or John Thornton or or etc." Um, you know, we we'd love to hear from you. Who would be your pick um, out of that kind of that group? Yes. Okay. So. Um, who uh, okay just a very quick one we haven't got time to delve into this but if we look at the main love interest from our own body of work both published and you know unpublished but we've talked about it um who do we believe the best love interest is in our own work 
I, I kind of actually want to switch this around and basically say, let's do it for each other's work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you might say that. Okay. Um, okay. So um, I'm kind of in two minds. Um, now, on the one side, originally, I think I would have definitely gone for Kieran. Um, I just think that he ticks a lot of boxes for me. But kind of as we've gotten more into Harker and Blackthorn, it, I'm really gearing towards Steve. Because ultimately, I think, yes, he is a, a kind person. He's also just very interesting. He's engaged. Um, he is conscientious, um, observant, and is the kind of person who will be passionate about things and will share in your passions, even if he doesn't completely understand them, and will share his passions. And I just think that's an incredibly attractive quality and of course he will just be faithful 100% faithful and a good friend yeah yeah it is the good friend thing In, yeah Kieran's a good guy generally mm. definitely has a lot more in some respects to work on in his own character whereas yeah. Steve's big flaw is obviously his his um personal insecurity he's sort of like I, I don't deserve to be in any company kind of thing yeah, low self-esteem. But yes, yeah. I think I don't know actually. Um, if any of my regular readers are listening to this one, what do you think? Would you go for uh, which one of these two? Would you go for? Would yeah. you go for somebody else? Yeah. So what about you? Um, well, it's quite difficult because I don't know who I'm allowed to talk about. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I can't remember how much you've kind of said and to other people not just me because obviously I, I'm in the privileged position of knowing a few things that probably others don't um, but uh, I mean I guess I guess if probably Rufus because I think Jonathan is a little bit dramatic for me <laughs> to be honest yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but I also I mean because Rufus has these massive with cause in fairness but he has these massive downs these downward yeah. spiral moments um, yeah. he could be quite challenging as well yes you would have to be kind of um, emotionally resilient I think and fire retardant would be useful as well and fire retardant yeah. always a plus <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, that would be helpful with Amy as well. Yeah, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, what about you guys? Um, who would you kind of want to take on a date uh, from sort of my work from the Hamartia cycle? Um, Rufus, Jonathan. I'm going to put throw Zachary in there as well, just because again, you'd have to be emotionally resilient <laughs> and hopefully not They're look too very edible. Broken. Yeah, just edible enough, <laughs> edible in the right just, way. Yes. <laughs> Do let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Now, before we go, it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week, and Jules, I believe that you've got one for us. Yes. Now, a few weeks ago, I talked about such sharp te teeth by Rachel Harrison. And I've been, uh, she's one of those authors who I've been reading her back catalogue and I've just read her um, her witch book. So Such Sharp Teeth was about werewolves. Uh, Cackle, which is the one I finished a couple of days ago, is about witches. 
And this was a really great story. It was sort of whimsical horror in the sense of there were bits that were unsettling rather than outright horrific. And it was super cute and cosy in places as well. And what this really comes down to, I think, is it's a big metaphor for saying, I don't need somebody else to complete me. I'm enough in and of myself. But because of where I've grown up or, you know, various other pressures and things throughout my life, I've got to being 30 years old. Um, my boyfriend's just dumped me unceremoniously, even though we've been together almost 10 years. I don't really understand what's going on. I'm having to move somewhere else because I can't afford to live where I live to live anymore. Um, huge hmm. amounts of change and stuff for this main character. And the whole time, it. I think Harrison walks this really t uh, fine tightrope of this character being constantly in need of validation without actually being annoying. And that's a pretty difficult thing to accomplish mm -hmm. um, until you get to the point where the character goes, now hang on a minute, I don't need validation from anyone else. I'm cool. <laughs> I'm awesome. I'm comfortable in and of myself, by myself and alone. I don't need anybody else. So anyone who is with me, I've chosen to be with them. And that's a lot more valuable than I need somebody to complete me. And there's all sorts of witchy stuff in there as well. It's very, very cool. It's a fun book. Okay, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening. And we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.